Thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this psalm that David wrote and show us what you would have us to learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 144. Blessed be the Lord, my strength, which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight, my goodness and my for fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I trust, who subdues my people under me. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you make account of him? Man is like unto vanity, his days are as a shadow that passes away. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down, touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Cast forth lightning and scatter them, shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Send your hand from above, rid me and deliver me out of the great waters from the hand of the strange children, whose mouth speaks vanity and their right hand is the right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song unto you, O Lord, upon a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. I will praise, sing praises unto you. It is he that gives salvation unto kings and who delivers David his servant from the hurtful sword. Rid me and deliver me from the hand of the strange children whose mouths speak vanity and their right hand is in is a right hand of falsehood, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth and our daughters may be as cornerstones polished after the similitude of a palace, that our garners may be full according all manner of store, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong to labor, that there be no more breaking in or going out, that there be no more complaining in our streets. Happy is the people that is in such a case, yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. All right, this is one where David's not quite as bad a mood as many of them. Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. David understood war and, and fighting literally, but he also understood it spiritually. And God teaches us to fight spiritually. He strengthens our arms. He strengthens our hands for war spiritually. And he brings it on to us in many cases. We look at, the, look at Job. Satan goes, you know, where have you been? He says, I've been wandering the world looking around. And God has said, have you considered my servant Job? He was putting Job in the middle of a battle on purpose. And God does that to us. Our memory verse this month is, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds, imaginations, and thoughts as we go further into five and six. God wants us victorious in our thought life, but how do we do that? We come into him, and we make him the center of our thoughts, the center of our emotions, the center of who we are. And when we do this with him, he is lifted up. He becomes the center. Out of the abundance of our heart, we speak. And this is so important. God says, who is the center of your heart? Am I the center of your heart, or is it the world? Now, for so many of us, the world is the center of our heart. And we can hear that when we talk and, and make conversation, and this is why I challenge people. Listen to what you say. Who are you talking about? What are you talking about more often than not? It will show you what the center of your heart is, what the abundance of your heart is. And David says, blessed or, or kneel to the Lord my strength, which teaches me to battle, teaches me in these spiritual battles. Then to, if we don't know who, what God is talking about, my goodness or the, my mercy and my fortress, my stronghold. 
David uses all these military terms, you know, when he calls God, but he understands God is his fortress and his refuge. And this is something most of us need to get better at. God needs to be our refuge. There are times for a warrior that they would go into a secure place to get out of the battle. In David's day, they would be the fortresses, the, 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 the towers in the middle of the, of the route that you're going to, the, the strongholds. And he says, there's times. Now, what our world will say, well, that's just weakness. You're, you're trying to hide. Yes, you're right. I'm trying to hide. I want to hide from the battle. I don't let God be my defense. And the more I let God be my defense, the better off I am. David's understanding that. God, you are my fortress. You're my refuge. When the battle is, is going hard, I'm going to run into you. I'm going to hide. And, you know, this is so important. He goes, you're my high tower, my deliverer, my shield. <laughs> in you, I will trust. I will trust in you, Lord. And this is something that is so hard for us so often, to just trust God. You know, God's plans are so much bigger than our plans. He knows so much more than we do, and yet... How often do we have trouble trusting God? God, I just don't understand your plan. And God's saying, of course you don't understand my plan. I'm looking 50 years down the road for you, and, you don't, and you're having trouble understanding my plan. I wonder why. God, I just don't understand how your plan is good for me right now. Well, you're right. Right now it may not seem like the best plan, but 50 years down the road you'll look back and say, wow, that was a really great plan you have, God. A thousand years from now, we'll look back and say, boy, God, you really had a great plan. I, was, I watched the movie, Do You Believe, again, for the second time. And at the very end of it, it talks about the tapestry that God's creating. And, it's, and that doesn't originate from them. But he goes, we're on the wrong side of the tapestry, looking at all the knots and the, and the hanging threads and the bits and pieces. He goes, but when you get to the other side and you see the tapestry from the right side, and I think about this because Lynn used to do a lot of needlepoints and, and cross-stitching and all these things. And from the back side, they look funny. They don't look very pretty at all. But you flip them over, and all the knots and the cross-stitching and everything is there. And it's beautiful on the other side. And you know, God's got a plan that he's putting together. And we see it from the wrong side on this, in this world. We see the knots and the mess. We get to heaven and God shows it to us on the other and we go, oh, that was my life. That little thread right there that caused the dark mark in the, in the picture, the contrast. That was my life. And we're going to go, wow, you knew what you were doing, God. And we don't know what part we're going to have in that, that tapestry that God is creating. And we always want to have this idea of God, explain yourself to me. God, I just don't understand your plan. Explain it to me, and then I'll be more than happy to follow you. And God's saying, uh, I'm the master. I'm the Lord. I'm the potter. You're the clay. If I want to make you the chamber pot, that's my business, God says. And most of us don't want to be a chamber pot. We want to be the prize china dish that gets put on the, out for the parties. And God's saying, well, yes, but that party plate only comes out a couple times a year. The chamber pot gets used every day. You know, you want to be the thing that comes out once a year, once every other year for the party? You know, and, I, and I'm kind of being tongue-in-cheek there, but you know, that is what God says for us. I have a great use for you. And I think about how many people have 
special dishes that come out once every other year or every fifth year, you know, because they're afraid they're going to get broken. Yeah. yeah. These are my, this is my good china. When I have a special occasion, I'll use it. I haven't used them for 10 years, but I'm going to, when I get ready to use them, they're going to be really, they're going to be there. They're going to be good. And God is saying, I have a plan. You don't need to know what the plan is because I'm the one that has the plan. And the picture of the master and the servant, Jesus said, you know, the, the servant comes out of the field and does the master say, well, you sit down, have your dinner, and then you can serve me. He goes, no, serve me, and then you can go get your dinner after, I'm, after you've done, done your service. That's his plan for us. We are to do what he wants us to do while we're alive. Once we enter in heaven, then we get the benefits of rest. But until then, we do what the master wants. And that may mean sometimes we feel like we're being abused and used and, and really having to run around with our heads, you know, without any knowledge in it. And God says, you're just doing what I'm telling you. Good. When you get to heaven, we'll let you rest. But we want to be able to understand God is in control. And my favorite saying with God is sometimes, God, I don't know what you're doing. And, and it doesn't, you promised that all things work together for good. And it doesn't seem like this could be, but... You're in charge, and I know that it's true. And that's a good way of rethinking. God, I don't understand it. I guess I'm not supposed to understand it, but you have promised that all things work together for good. And when we have that attitude, it's like, okay, God, I'm willing to go through whatever you want me to go through. That's basically what Job did when he was being tempted, especially at first. You know, his wife said, curse God and die. And he goes, naked I came into this world, naked I'll go out. You know, a foolish woman, will we take good from God and not evil? You know, he was very matter-of-fact at those times. You know, then, then he had his friends come and harass him for, for days. You know, Job, you know, you really had to have been really bad to get all this bad you know, stuff because bad things don't happen to good people. You know, the prosperity gospel was live and real during Job's day. But did you teach him that? Like I Probably. The word, the word for, the, for friends was actually more of disciples. They were the generation that he had taught, and they were parroting back his words. And nothing's worse than to have your false doctrines parroted back to you. I know. Uh, it is bad when that happens, and you go, did I really teach those people that, all that garbage that I'm now hearing, and it doesn't mean a thing? And that's what Job's friends were teaching him. You know, Job, you know, you taught us. You know, we're just telling you what you taught us. You know, bad things don't happen to good people. With the, information. with the information and the doctrine they had, they were, they were encouraging him to the best that they could have. And, and that's why if you read Job's answers in very poetic language, he's going, yes, I know what you say is true, but I don't deserve this. Okay? And every time they come back with, with another prosperity gospel message for, to him, he goes, yes, I know what you're saying is true, but... I have, I've not been evil. I've, I've honored God. I've, honored, I've made my sacrifices. I can't think of a sin that I've done that's worth this much, much punishment. And God, is, God does that with us a lot. If we have a false doctrine that we, we believe, he will put us in a, in a place where that false doctrine is going to be completely challenged and say, now what are you going to do? Are you going to hold on to your false doctrine or are you going to study more and find out what I say? And we all have false doctrines that we've been taught at some place and that we've grabbed hold of. All of us do. And 
sometimes they come back in a bitter way because we teach it to our children and to our grandchildren. And then when it doesn't work for them or something bad happens to them and they repeat it back to us, we're going, no, hold it. That, you know, all of a sudden the illogic of what, what we taught them clicks and then we're in very great sorrow because now we've got to retrain our kids somehow and it's hard to retrain people. It really is. Which is why good Sunday school teachers teaching children. Because you teach these children wrong and it may be decades before they're taught the right way of thinking. Somebody like me comes along and trains somebody and go, hold it, that's not what I was taught. I, that wasn't what I was taught when I was little. And it's hard to change people's minds because what gets into your mind at a young age forms the way you think. You know, and one of the things that I have really despised when I've heard teachers say, well, God doesn't, doesn't love you when you do something like that. I'm ready to strangle a teacher that says that. It's like God always loves them. He may not like what they're doing, but he always loves them. Don't make them afraid to come to God. And this is so important because I've met so many adults who are afraid to come to God because people have hammered in your, into their head that God doesn't love you when you do this. Well, because if God doesn't love me, I'm not going to go anywhere near him with my sin. I'm not going to confess my sin. I'm not going to ask for forgiveness. He doesn't love me. Well, they were hiding from him. I don't know that they didn't trust his love, but they, they, they were worried because he was going to kill them. In the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. So they ate the fruit, and they died at the moment they ate that fruit. They, they didn't realize that they had died at that moment. But they were afraid, afraid of God when they went to, to see him that he's going to strike us dead because we ate this fruit. That was his promise. They didn't understand that they were already dead. But... And this is our problem so often. We get half of the truth from God and don't understand it completely, and then we act on the half we think we understand, and it's the worst half. Adam and Eve are afraid of physical death when they've already died spiritually, and they're afraid to come before God because they're afraid that he's going to strike them dead physically when they're already, in the worst case, dead spiritually. And talked and visited with him in the cool of the evening. After they ate that tree, instantly they couldn't look on him. They had sin. But yet he sat down in front of them and he had to know they were about to itch the skin off their bodies from that fig leaf, unless it didn't have stickers before. And he sat down and killed that lamb and showed them how to do it. Did God say they couldn't see him anymore or that they would be out of fellowship? They died spiritually the moment they ate the fruit. Yes. That did not mean that God was not going to deal with them. Why could God still deal with them? Jesus Christ was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world and was already their savior and forgiveness even before they realized that he was their savior and forgiveness. So he probably is who they visited with. Yes, it was Jesus they visited with. Not, okay. without, without a doubt, he was a, it was a Christophany that they, they, they visited with. And then he was the one that was able to come down to them still and say, Adam, where are you? And kill the lamb and clothe them with the skin and, and continue teaching them as he had already been doing. The thing about this probably two levels, uh, how could Jesus walk with him in the cool evening Because Jesus has always existed. He took a form of the flesh that he was going to have 4,000 years later 
but he showed up in the cool of the evening. He showed up with Abraham to tell him, what are we going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? He showed up when Jacob wrestled the angel in the middle for, for the full night, and it was him. He showed up in the fiery furnace with Adrach, Meshach, and Abednego because he is eternal. And we've covered this many times, but we'll cover it again. The, the, it's called the pre-council of God. Before God created anything in this world, before he created man, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit got together, said, we're going to create man. Man's going to sin. Jesus, you, I want you to offer yourself as a sacrifice. You're going to become a human, live a perfect life, and be the sacrifice. And as soon as Jesus said, yes, I will do that, our salvation was paid for. We're not even a, we're not even a, nothing's created yet. And as soon as he said yes, those who were going to accept him were saved. This is why I have some real big problems with these people that say, well, the, New, the Old Testament saints didn't get saved and didn't, get, you know, didn't go to heaven until after Jesus died. Jesus said yes before everything was created. They went to heaven if they were going to go to heaven. Just plain and simple. He died, and in the Father's mind, as soon as he said yes, it was done. Because he knew that as soon as Jesus said yes, that's God. My son, God, <laughs> said yes, he's going to do it. So then he can now have the body before he's born to show up to all these people in a physical uh, being of God because he was already going to do it. And there was no question that he was going to do it. And, you know, it's hard for us to understand. It really is. Before the event happened, God said, you said yes, it's going to happen. Just speaking of it enough. Just saying yes, I'm going to do it in, to the Father was enough to say it is done. You said you're going to do it. I'm God. I'm true. I'm God. You're God. The Spirit's God. When you said yes, nothing is going to stop you from doing it. Still had to be. It still had to happen, but because God is true, it was going to happen no matter what. You know, we would say in human terms, come hell or high water, it was going to happen. Okay, there was, and nothing like that would even stop Jesus from accomplishing it, but that's the idea. Nothing, when he said yes before the creation of the world, he was the lamb slain before we even had man or a need for this lamb to be slain. As soon as he said yes, God says, it's done. It is finished before it even started anything. It's an amazing thought, but because God is outside of time, it, it makes sense. But you've got to be able to put yourself outside of time. And I've said, how omnipresent is God? God is everywhere present, but he is also every time present. Jesus, right this moment, is with Adam and Eve at the creation of the world, and he is already in the millennial kingdom because he's outside of time. And he's right now with us in the center of time. Well, we're, no, we're closer to millennial, but you know, he's in the middle of time as well. It's hard to wrap our minds around that. You know, like this piece of paper that you know, we have here, there's, there's words written on this piece of paper. To the words, this is just a long strip, you know, long flat line. But to me, I see all the words at one time, and I see the beginning from the end of the, of the piece of paper. That's how God sees time. I know that's very simplistic, but that's how God sees time. He looks down, and there's the, there's the beginning of time, there's the end of time. 
and everything in between is very clear to him. So when he makes a prophecy, it's not this might come, might come true. It is, it is already come true as far as he's concerned because he's been there, done that, and he's moved on. But for us, it's future before he ever created anything. It's, we're going to get together. We're going to create man. They're going to fall. So, Jesus, I want you to die for them. Spirit, you're going, to, you're going to indwell them while they live on this earth and help perfect them. And then we're going to take them back to heaven when they've accepted you, Jesus. Why God's done it, I don't know. It blows my mind that he created man knowing that we were going to sin. Would we do half of what we do if we knew everything about the results of it? Absolutely not. I will not sure. No, there's a lot I did that was a sin. I knew it was a sin, and I would not. Could I go back? I would not do it again. Well, let's throw this out. What if you knew that the sin you committed was going to be used for the salvation of somebody 30 years from now, from the time you did it? Yeah. Would you do it? I don't know. I don't know, but this is what God understands. This is why he can make things work together for good, because he knows what it means. And I can tell you, there are things in my life that were not good when they happened, but have shaped me and moved me to be better today because of what I went through. So would I change it? I don't know that I would. If I change something in the past that impacted today, the three people that got saved or whatever, in the last month or whatever it might be, would I still change that one event that forced these other events to happen? Now, that doesn't mean it was right, but it is that God used it. I have said many times that if I could go back, I would not want to change anything because everything that I've gone through has made me who I am today. Now, would it have been better not to have done some of those sins? Possibly. But would I be the same person I am today? Would I have touched all the same lives that I had touched if I had changed anything? No, there would be other paths that would have happened. Could I have been better? I don't know. You know this is why we need to be very careful with this idea of, you know, I'd like to go back and change things because sometimes the things we would want to change are not, would not make our life better. And the thing is, God already knew what was going to happen, so it had already been planned within the scope of what was going to happen. So we've got to be careful of all this what if and if this did that or the other thing had happened because we could drive ourselves nuts just in the Bible stories trying to figure out what if. What if Saul had actually been a man of God and gone out and fought the giant knowing that God was going to deliver to him, deliver him into, into his hand and not bringing David up? You know, we could come up with all kinds of what ifs. You know, Saul, the king, the one who was supposed to be anointed by God, should have gone out and fought the giant saying, God is going to deliver you into my hand. The same thing David said. Right. You defied God. He's delivering you into my hand. Now, it wouldn't have been as miraculous if the king did, did that because the king was head and shoulders above all the people, which meant he was probably about six foot, so the giant was only about three foot taller than him. Just three foot. You know, but, uh, but, you know, we can play what-if games all until the cows come home and it doesn't mean anything. God knew what was going to happen, and he made the plans around those things that he knew was going to happen. And he already knows. And none of, nothing that ever happens in this life surprises God. Nothing. And we've got to get that through our heads most of the time. God, how could this have happened? How did you let that person die? How did you let all four tires of mine get cut at one night? How did you, you know, God, I just don't understand why you let these things happen. And God goes, I've got a plan. 
I've got a plan. I want to teach you something. And you know, we just have to bow and say, God, I don't understand what your plan is, but you've promised it's going to work together for good, and I'm going to trust in that plan. And that's the most important thing that we can do for him is say, God, I don't understand, but I'm going to trust in your plan. And this includes the things that we cause to be the problems. When I do something in sin and I cause a problem, God still has a plan to make that work out for good. Especially if we're willing to back off his house, which in David's case turned out to be Jesus. Doesn't even matter whether we will or not. This does not change God's plan. He already knew that you weren't going to will it and he'd had to break your will to get you to his good. God already knows it. He knows when we sin. He knows how we're going to react to that sin. Just as he had to send Nathan to David with this message of a, of a shepherd, a, a man losing his sheep, which he knew would, would make David angry. And that was a way to get David to finally break. But he already knew that he was going to take him nine months before David was going to break. Or 12 months, whatever it might have been. Nine, mo nine months for the baby and then for the child to be born. So maybe two years at the max. But you know, he knew how long it was going to take David to be at a point where he would break. And he put his plan in action for it. He knows how long it's going to take us to finally break and confess. He knows how much he has to put us through to get us to finally give up. And some people are more hard-headed than others. You know, I've told you all the story. The time it took me six years to learn something. Six years of God putting obstacles in my path. For me to finally say, God, I give up. I want to quit trying to fix this problem. I need you. Now, when I tell you I'm hard-headed, I can be hard-headed. God, God has worked on me. He's making me less hard-headed. I usually respond a lot quicker nowadays. It doesn't usually take me six years to learn. It took, it took Abraham a decade or more to finally get, uh, get it through his head that he wasn't supposed to be in Haran. His father had to die before he left Haran. Okay, Ur of Chaldees, Abraham, go and leave, go where I tell you. Go by yourself. Leave your family behind. So Abraham walks out with his dad and his nephew and all of his servants and stops at Haran for, 20, for over a decade. You know, God, I've been obedient to you. I left. Uh, why is dad here? Why is your nephew here? Well, God, you know, uh, you can't leave my family behind. Finally, dad's dead and he gets back on his journey. He still isn't fully obedient. He takes his nephew still. And his nephew causes him problems. Well, yeah, he's the daddy of the Moabite. We look at this and say, God, what is it you want me to do? And we need to be obedient to God and not add our own way of doing things to him. And not be stiff-necked. The Hebrew people were stiff-necked all their time when leaving Egypt and wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their stiff-necked disobedience to God. Now, I thought I was a long time with, with six years, you know, 40 years of being disobedient to God. In some ways, I guess it's a good quality, not being towards God. But there are aspects of being that way that are good, because it'll make you persevere through things that are tro troublesome. But if you're, even if you're sitting there, you're not really following. It's not God doing it, it's you doing it. If you're being stiff-necked toward God, it's a terrible thing. Yeah. But 
to be somebody who can persevere through trials and tribulations is a good aspect if you know you're doing, it, doing what God wants you to do. It's a great thing. Satan throws the whole, the whole army of hell against you and you're going to say, God told me to do this. I'm going to do it. That's perseverance and stiff neck. That's a very good, good feature. But all of this comes down to God knows our decision. He knows what strength that we need and where we're, we're weak and he knows where he's going to have to step in and, and give us strength and where he's going to have to break some of our strengths at times. Because sometimes we walk and do things in our own strength that are not what God wants us to do. And this is something I have to be very careful of. Sometimes when I think I'm doing what God wants and, and everything's going against me, the first thing I have to go to God is say, God, are you wanting me to go a different way? Or, or is this just my tenacity that I'm never going to stop doing something until I'm very clear that it's not what I'm supposed to do? And I am that type of person. You tell me to do something, I will do it. I made a great second person in, in charge. You told me you wanted something done, I was going to make sure it happened. One way or another, it was going to happen. So if you decided you were changing plans, you better tell me because I'm, I would be in opposition to you at that point because you told me you wanted something. And it's a great feature for a leader when they know they're doing what they're supposed to do. But you can do something right. Everything about what you're doing is right. And you'd be wrong because it's not what you wanted done right then to get another situation done. And for whatever the reason, you didn't comprehend because you're doing it right. So obviously you're trying to do what's when you, somebody gets saved, Satan's lost the battle for their soul. All right? Now you get somebody who really wants to serve God. Okay? Not just sit in the pew. Satan's okay if you get saved and sit in the pew because you're not causing problems. But if you choose that you want to obey God, Satan will try to get you so busy doing good things that you stop doing the best thing that God wants you to do. And I've seen people, myself included early in my life, that burn out trying to do good things instead of waiting to see, God, what is it you want me to do? What's best? And they do five or six good things. They're good things. There's nothing wrong with them. Sometimes the hardest decision we have to make as Christians is this good or this good. God, both of them look really good. And God says, I want the middle good. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes, you know, but that's what the apostles did. We're going, to replace, we're going to replace Judas. God, do you want Matthias or do you want the other guy that I can't remember his name of because he chose Matthias? And God says, well, I don't want either one of them. I really don't want either one of them. I want Paul. Okay. Okay. God, here's our, here's our two choices. Which of the two do you want? How many times do we do that to God? God, do you want me to do this or this? Well, exactly what do you think they would do by then? Because they knew by then who Paul was. Well, they would never have chosen Paul. Never. Never. And neither would I. How many times do we do this to God? God, do you want me to do this or that? And God says, well, I really don't want you to do either one of them. Right. And, but as long as we're stuck on this good or this good, God's going, I have a really good blessing for you. I have a, the best blessing over here. Get off of this two goods and let's go to the best. We do, we do it to God a lot. And God's saying, would you just listen to me? And then when we start down a path, we continue down that path no matter what because we're so sure it's a good path. And God is saying, uh, I made a right-hand turn back there you know, when down this path that you didn't think was looking very good. You're headed, you're headed to the quicksand and the, 
and the pits down there. I've got, I've got this safe path that you get, you know, would you get back here where I'm at? We're going up this path as we walk into the quicksand. Sometimes we do have to just take some steps and say, God, is this the direction you want? But the most important thing is that we listen. Elijah, we say, and God says he showed up to him in the, in the, you know, the storm and God wasn't there. He showed up in the fire and he wasn't there. He showed up here and he wasn't there. And he says, and he, then he came to me in a still, small voice. Usually we're looking for some miraculous thing from God saying, you know, great big bullhorn, turn to the left. And usually it's God just saying, turn to the left. God, I think the right looks really nice. Uh, that, there's, not, there's not a lot of problems that way. There's, there's a crowd over here that might, might want to take my life. God says, take the left. I've got, a, I've got a miracle for you over there. And we're going, no, God, I really want to go this way. I want to get away from those people and go this way. And God goes, no, there's giants over there that are going to rip you to shred. I've got a miracle over here to get you out of it. And we go, unfortunately, so often we walk by sight. And what we think we see we get wrapped up. And then we go to God saying, God, I want you to tell me which way to go. I, I can go this way or this way. And God says, go back five steps and take the turn that, that, you've, that you passed. Or take the middle road that you're not seeing. Or, you know, but so often we will go to God and say, God, do I do this or this? And God's saying, well, I've got another choice for you. Well, we'll be real spiritual. We'll give him four or five choices. And he goes, well, I want, I want choice number seven. But it is so critical for us to listen to the voice of God and quit looking by sight. Yeah. And going back to George Mueller, I've read that book and I love it. You know, the, the servants come to him and say, you know, hey, we have no breakfast for the kids. He could have gone, well, let's send them all back to their dorms and then we'll go, we'll go into the, the chapel and we'll go pray about this. But his choice was... Let's, let, let's, go, let's go into the kitchen, into the dining room, and we're going to thank God for the meal. That's the, and they're going, no, no, you don't understand. There, there is no meal. We're going to go thank God for the meal they're going to eat. No, no, you really don't understand. We have nothing for them to eat. And he's going, we're going to go thank God for the meal that they're going to have. What a walk of faith. We look at this and say, God, what is your plan? How do I listen to God's voice? And usually the problem that we have is we get so wrapped up in the problem that we see that we can't see the answer and we're not willing to listen to God. And uh, there's a Christian song out about, about that, how the problems look so small on the other side of the problem. Yeah. And how many times do we, when we're on one side of the problem, it looks like a giant. It looks huge. It looks like there's no way around it. And we turn it over to God and we get to the other side and we look back at it and say, that was what I was afraid of? You know, that little anthill I thought was a big mountain and I was afraid of it? You know, this is what's really important for us. On the other side of the problem after God's gotten us through it and we realize how big and powerful he is and how insignificant the problem was. I guess one way of looking at it is, is, is and I don't really think about it like this at all, is, that, is it really a problem? Usually not. About two or three weeks, I was really going through something really hard. And I'm going, God, I just don't see a way out. And I started trying to figure out, because that's me. I'm going to figure out how to get this problem solved. And then after I said, well, nothing's working. I guess I'll just give up. This one didn't take me six years to get through. It just took me a couple weeks. And I got done. I'm looking at it. And I'm going, why was I so worried about this in the first place? It really isn't that big an issue. Why is it different now? Because God says, I'm going to take care of it. I gave it over to God to take care of it. And God, 
God says, okay, I'm going to move these Lincoln logs around and I'm going to create a path through the middle of this, this jungle that you can't see. And now walk down this path. God, I didn't see that path. Well, it wasn't there until you gave it over to me and I moved some pieces around. Okay, I moved the pieces around and now you've got a clear path. All I saw was a tree sitting in front of me. And God's saying, take a few steps back, we'll go around the tree and there's a path. And sometimes you didn't know which one. Sometimes it didn't matter which one, especially if you're in a well-cultivated area. But you know, if you're in the wilderness, if you go down the wrong path, you could end up in trouble. You could end up walking down a path that looked like a path and ends up not being a path. It just looked like a path where you, where you were at. And God says, I'm going to open the path. Just listen to me. This is the way. Walk you in it. And sometimes it's just us stepping back and saying, God, I don't see how to get out of this problem. I don't understand what you're trying to show me, God. I need you. That total surrender to God. And I keep saying this over and over. The, one, the most interesting thing about surrendering to God is it makes no sense to do it. But once you do it, and you get past it, and it's like, God, that was so easy. Because so often I get asked, well, how do you surrender to God? Just do it. And my picture is, if we're sitting in this room, and all of a sudden we get this bullhorn outside saying, come out, you're surrounded, come out with your hands up, we have two choices. We can sit in this room until they fire tear gas and, and batter down the room and, and take us, or we come out with our hands up. God's outside most cases saying, come out with your hands up. Just surrender to me. How do we do it? We do it. We just decide to surrender to God and see how he's going to do it. Now, it takes practice. It, it's not easy to surrender to God. The more you do it, the easier it gets to be. The more you love people, the easier it is to love them. Those first couple of people to love are hard. Because number one, you don't think it's going to work. And then you start loving people and you see how God works in their life. You learn to forgive people. And those first couple of people to forgive are hard to forgive. Your flesh doesn't want to forgive them. You're just going, God, if I forgive them, they're going to, they're going to abuse me. They're going to, they're going to make my life miserable if I forgive them. And, and slowly you start realizing that the gift of forgiveness is not even for them. It's for us. We keep ourselves held prisoner to other people's opinions that have no need to be, be a prisoner to. God's saying, why are you angry at that person from 28 years ago? You know, they don't even know you're angry anymore. You're the prisoner of your anger toward them. And God's saying, forgive them. Release yourself from that prison. And we forgive and we get released from that prison. And we walk in freedom. And it's so wonderful to walk in that freedom. It's not easy. I'm not, I don't ever want to think it's easy. It wasn't easy to walk back from the problem and say, this problem that I've been spending two weeks, three weeks on is really a big deal. And God's saying, well, and surrender to him and go, God, man, what? that wasn't a hard problem at all. You took care of it with no problem. And as you said, I look back on it and go, wasn't even a problem in the first place. Not a big one. You know, is it fully solved yet? No, but I can see that it's not that big. But that's how our problems really are. When we're on the wrong side of it, it looks like a huge problem, and God makes us grow, and all of a sudden we look back on the problem, and we're going, oh, this wasn't that big a, it wasn't, wasn't that big a problem. It wasn't that big an issue. You know, and besides which, what issue that's going to hit our life is going to be big to God? If we learn to turn things over to God, 
nothing is big to God. God created the heavens and the earth. No problem in my life is going to seem big to God. It may look huge to me, but to God, it's not a problem at all. If we think back to our kids, you know, our kids come to us with their problem, and we, you know, sometimes it was hard not to laugh about their problem. Because you're looking at it and going, what, what's that problem? You know, that's not a problem. Well, that's because I'm an adult. Right. It's not a problem to me as an adult. A child's problem, big problem, is not a problem to me as an adult. We're his children. None of our problems are big to God. He created the heavens and the earth. If it was a really, really big problem, he'd just create something to solve it anyway. He's got the power to create something to solve it if it was a really big problem. But no problem for God's, God is that big a deal. Yeah. And I love to say this, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and all the hills that they're on and all the gold and silver in those hills. And if by any chance he runs out of money, he'll just create more gold and silver and cattle. Okay, uh, not a problem to him. Oh, you needed more than I've got there? I don't know why you need more than the whole world's fortunes, but here, we'll, we'll create some more for you. Okay, not a problem to God. And the more we learn to trust him, and I love the story of Elisha. The army's there to arrest him and take him to the king. And the servant's all panicky. And he says, open my, open my servant's eyes and let him see that more, the, those that are with us are more than those that are against us. If we just truly learn to depend on God, I have had so many instances in my life where a problem has appeared and I can't see a way out. And I say, God, I don't see the way out. And the next thing I know, there's that path. Miraculous path? Yes. Yeah. Unseen path? I don't know. Maybe the path was there the whole time and I just was so focused on the problem I didn't see the path. Maybe God created the path. You know, he's the one that moved the toys out of the way and said, here's your path. He split the Red Sea so that they could walk on dry land. He can, he can split, the, split the problems in front of us if we just trust him. Well, we read the testimonies of so many missionaries that have had miraculous things happen to them. Uh, stories of people driving up a mountainside where the road has been washed out and getting to the top of the mountain to minister to a, to a community and getting ready to go home and they go, you can't go that way. The road's been washed out for three months. Well, we just came up, with, come up this road yesterday. There's no way you did it. And the tracks end you know, on, both, uh, on both sides of the washed out road. And they're going, you obviously came up there, but we don't know how you did it. Well, God, God did it. God can do the miraculous if he has to. But, he, but most of the things we go through are not necessarily miraculous. I love the story of a little girl in a missionary family wanting a doll. Wanting a doll, praying for her doll. Praying for a doll, praying for a doll. And they go, well, nobody's going to send you a doll, sweetie. You know, they're going to send us medical supplies and clothes. So the next missionary box that came, she's ripping through the box trying to find her doll. And at the very bottom of the box was a doll. She had prayed for a doll, and God gave her a doll. When I was young, we sent a box to a, team, a missionary team in, in Finland. And this one person put in a case of peanut butter. Everybody's laughing at this person for putting peanut butter in this box going to the missionaries in Finland. When they wrote back the letter of thanks for the box, I go, the thing we loved the most was the peanut butter. Peanut butter costs $20 a jar here in Finland, and we love our peanut butter, and we have not been able to eat peanut butter since we've been here. Maybe not $20, but it was more than they could afford. 
Okay, it was a huge, I mean, it was like, compared to what we spent for peanut butter, the whole case was what they were, were going to spend for, for a jar or two, you know, and it's like, all they could do was talk about the peanut butter that somebody was led by God to put into this box because he heard God leading, or she, I can't remember he or she, but they heard God say, do that. And everybody's teasing them, you know, why are you putting a case of peanut butter in there? And yet, that was the greatest blessing as far as they were concerned. All the other stuff was great, and the big stuff was great, but the peanut butter for them was so special because they hadn't been able to have it for so long. How many of us in America would think that that was something special? None. We get peanut butter, it's, you know, we get it uh, delivered in care packages and, and freebie stuff all the time, and it's cheap at, the, cheap at most stores to buy a peanut butter for Americans. But you know, sometimes God takes that facetious yes. attitude and, and blesses us in spite of it. But we'll never forget it. Because yeah, we won't forget it and it becomes a lesson. But it is this whole idea of just turning over to God. How do we hear his voice? We learn to hear it. How do we learn to trust him? We take steps that make no sense. Sometimes, sometimes we hear it through other people's actions. Sometimes it's just because we do it. Sometimes we're learning and we're going to make mistakes. You know, and I love the example. I have seen so many mothers in churches that they'll hear a baby crying in the nursery. To me, it's just a baby crying in the nursery and the mother knows exactly which baby it is and what the need is. My baby's hungry, I gotta go take care of him, or my baby needs the diaper changed, or oh, he's just crying, he's not happy, you know, not happy about something, nothing, no, no big deal. They, you know, mothers seem to know this stuff. Why? Because they spend so much time with that baby that they know, you know. How do we start hearing God's voice? We start spending enough time with him that we know his voice. And then when we start spending that much time with him, we know that he's speaking. We know that he has given us direction because we're used to his voice. When we first start out, we may not know his voice, and we're trying to go, God, is that you that's speaking to me? And, and we step out and we find out, yes, it was, and then we start recognizing his voice more and more with each progressive step out. And the more we practice listening to him, the better we get to hear him. The more we practice obedience, the better we get at it. Yeah. And this is very important for us to always understand. It's been a long time since I've mentioned it is, we start out as children with God, and it takes time to grow. Yeah. And God is so patient with us. He gives us the time to grow. You know, the people around us, the people in the church around us don't always give us the time to grow, but God says, I understand. I understand that you're an infant on milk. I don't expect you as an infant on milk to be eating steak. As a matter of fact, if you give an infant on milk steak, you're going to hurt the child. Okay, but by the same token, 30 years from now, he doesn't want us being an infant drinking milk. He wants us eating steak after 30 years. And he says, I've got plans for you. Do I expect you to follow my plans perfectly as an infant? No, but you're to learn. When you're a child, you're to learn. When you get to get into maturity, by that time, we're supposed to know his voice. You know, a child knows his mother's voice. And, or, and his father if it's a good, good family. When they're called out in the park, they know their mother and father's voice, and they can usually tell the tone whether they're in trouble or just being called. You know, even if you don't hear your, all three parts of your name being called out. 
uh, you know, when you hear all three parts of your name being called out, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> you know what's going on because you know your parents' voice. We know what's going on with God because we know his voice over time. If we're spending time with him, we'll, we'll know his voice. If I'm in the word, I'll start to know his voice. If I'm praying and listening for him, I'll know his voice. When I'm acting out of the direction he gives me, I'm going to learn his voice and saying, this is the voice of God. This is the way. Walk you in it. And we'll hear because we're listening. We've trained ourselves to listen. Now, we can train ourselves not to listen. And we got lots of people who do that in their life. They train themselves not to listen. And we can train ourselves not to listen to God. But man, that takes a lot of work, especially for a child of God to train themselves not to listen. For the world not to listen to him, it's still impossible because he says, it is plain that I declare myself in the heavens. It is plain to you. To not hear for the lost world even is a big deal. They have to purposely tune out God. And we see this all the time. You know, uh, a quote that was given just the other day in the class, you know, the guy says, I don't believe in spontaneous generation of life, but here we are. Therefore, I believe in the spontaneous generation of life. This is a scientist speaking these words. We know that life doesn't spend, uh, spontaneously spring up, but because we know that evolution is true and we're here, therefore, spontaneous generation of life had to, you know, had to start. How many twisted ways do you have to come up with to believe those kind of lies? He's talking about all the way back billions of years ago. Life just generating. There's much that goes on where people get confused, but you know, we do that as Christians too. We make some bad decisions. We don't know the word well enough and we make some bad decisions. God, I really think that I'm supposed to marry this person even though they're not a Christian. God says, don't do that. They're not a Christian. Don't be unequally yoked. Yeah. She's beautiful, God. I can, I can turn her. You know, and God says, yeah, Solomon thought a lot of his wives were beautiful and they turned his heart away from, them, from God. Solomon is even greater. He's the wisest man that's ever lived. And he marries all these women and builds temples to their gods. And you can know how the picture's going. Well, you know, honey, you know, I know I'm only one of 1,000 of your wives, but, you know, I'm really bored. I want, I want to worship my God. No, we're going to worship God. After months and months of, I really want a temple, he builds him a temple. Well, you know, that's not where sin stops. Uh, you know, Solomon, uh, it'd really be nice if you would go to church with me once in a while in the temple of my God. I oh, know I've got to follow only my God. Months and months later, it's like he's worshiping in their temple just to satisfy the woman. The next thing you know, he's not following God. How easy it is to make bad decisions and make a series of bad decisions. And there's, as we've said so many times, there's consequence for sin. Sin always has a consequence. And we have to pay that price, whether we like it or not, whether we forgive, ask for forgiveness, there's a price to be paid. David, after his affair with Bathsheba, prays for the child to be healed, that God is struck sick, and the, and the child dies. The consequence of sin was that the child died. Now, pretty easy consequence in one thing, because it should have been David and Bathsheba that died for, for adultery. But God chose to take only the, the child. Not nice for the child. It wasn't the child's fault that they committed sin, but 
that was God's choice was to take the child and not David and Bathsheba. And oftentimes sin has consequences that we do not ever plan or think about. Because most people when they sin say, well, you know, I'm going to go get drunk. I can handle a hangover. Okay, what about the stupidity that you did when you took, took this person home and ended up with a sexually transmitted disease because you got so drunk you didn't know what you were doing? Okay, you didn't have just a hangover. Or you got in your car and wrapped it around a tree, or worse yet, around another car and killed people. Okay, God, I, I, I was ready for a hangover. I'm not ready to go to prison for manslaughter, and yet that's going to be the, be the consequence. So many times we'll go, God, I can handle the consequences I think are going to happen. And God goes, oh, if you only knew all the consequences, you wouldn't be doing this. And we need to be so listening to God. And it takes time to learn to listen to God. And we never really get it down pat in most cases. That's why I love Elisha, who's just so much faith that he was able to say, just open his eyes. Let him see the way I'm seeing. Let him see the way that I'm seeing. You know, God, it doesn't look like this is going to be any good. And God says, but you just go, God, I'm going to have so much faith that you say you have a plan and that you're going to work things together for good. I'm going to trust you. And you know how much life is easy when you just trust God? You know, and I'm not perfect at it myself, but, you know, it's so much nicer when I trust him than when I don't trust him. God, you've got, you've got a plan. You've got a plan. But, you know, the great thing is when we just trust God, he gives us the way out. He shows us the path. And sometimes we're stubborn and have to learn the hard way. After we've dug a hole 20 or 30 feet deep and God has to rescue us with a block and tackle to drag us out of the hole. Actually, he just lifts us out of the hole, but, but you know what I mean. It, we've dug a hole so deep that we can't, we can't see any way out of the hole. And God says, are you ready to give up yet? Have you dug a deep enough hole? No, God, I'm not quite done digging my hole. Okay, when you're done, let me know, and we'll get you, we'll get you out of the hole. But, you know, we do that to God a lot. Yes. God, I, I haven't dug this hole deep enough yet. I, I'm going to find my way out of here, God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build some stairs out of this hole somehow. And God saying, okay, well, when you finally give up, I will lift you out of the hole and put you where you're supposed to be. And it's amazing when we finally just say, God, uh, uh, God, I've dug a 100-foot hole now. I'm kind of tired. Would you, would you get me out of this hole? And gets, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. And just snatches us out of the hole, puts us where we're supposed to be. And it's like, why, why did I do this, God? Why did I fight with you so long when it was so easy to get out of this hole? All I had to do was say, help. You know, take me out. And we're in the middle of this hole saying, God, I see no way out of this hole. There's absolutely no way. I cannot see how to get out of this hole. And God says, of course you can't get out of the hole. It's going to take me to get you out of the hole because you've dug it pretty deep. God, I'm in the bottom of this well. There's water now in this, in this hole that I'm digging. I hit water, God. Can you get me out? I'm going to drown now. You hear people speaking Chinese. <laughs> he's, dug, he's dug a deep hole. <laughs> Yeah, God, I struck water. Uh, now, I don't, now I don't have just a hole. I'm going to drown in this hole. And that's, uh, and that's usually when we finally give up. Yeah, yeah. When we finally realize, uh, God, I'm going to die in this hole. I want out. But we get the picture of what I'm saying. You know, we keep digging, we keep digging, and we keep making our problems worse until we finally just say, God, I can't do this anymore. I give up. And all of a sudden, God lifts us out of it. He shows us the way out. He clears the path, whatever, whatever he does to make it happen. And we get to the end and we go, God, well, God, that was so simple. 
I've done it so many times. You know, so many times. God, it was so simple to get out of this hole. I'm God, you know. Yeah. I am God, you know. I can, I, I can get you out of anything. Uh, this goes in prayer since so we went well over our time. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We do thank you. Lord, help us to always look to you for the answers. Help us to listen to your voice. Help us to very quickly give up our plans and ask for your help and surrender to you. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.